welcome to episode three quarters of 100, or 75, of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. For you, there's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, Jesse, how are you? Well, good evening, Tony. How are you? I'm great. I'm so excited for the show tonight and for our episode. I'm just really stoked to get into it. I'm actually excited too, but the way we just set that up with our voices actually sounded really disingenuous, didn't it? <laughs> it did a little bit. We sound a little bit like we were, we were like trying it. to really sell it too hard. Like we promised we weren't going to turn into an NPR like pledge drive and we're like ramping up to do it or something like that. Yeah, that we're basically not. just not, happened. But that's what it sounds like. Yeah. So what do you got this week in terms of affirmations or denials? Your choice. What do you want to start with? Let's start with affirmations. So I'm going to go with the, go with the old school classic and just affirm a book I'm reading. So I, um, I had the first volume of Voss's, uh, Gerhardus Voss's Reformed Dogmatics. And then I got volume two and volume three, uh, for midwinter, no special reason gift. And, um, I started reading, volume one and it is just like it's just awesome so Voss is not the most well-developed systematic theologian um he was a biblical scholar so it's actually a little bit strange that he even had a systematic or a dogmatics but i think because of that he's he's technical but he's not as expansive as somebody like a, a bob inc so it's just you can get through it quickly it's almost in like a catechism format. It's it's a question of some sort, and then he answers it, and they're numbered. So it's very clear. It's very articulate, and it's very easy to move through pretty quickly. So I'm just I'm really enjoying something that's not as dense as something like a Bob Inc. or even like Horton Systematic or something like that. I took a sip of coffee right at the beginning of that affirmation. <laughs> it was not anticipating that you were going to say something to the extent of a midwinter's no special reason gift. <laughs> Well, we, I'm sure we've got some one covenanter who listens to our show that I want to make sure I'm not unduly offending. I love that we keep disguising Christmas gifts on this podcast. Yeah. That's outstanding. That's true. What about you? What are you affirming? So this week I'm affirming with something far less spiritual than that, but it's super G slalom because it's winter Olympics time. Yes, winter and Olympics. I did some slalom, slalom skiing in high school, and it is a stellar sport. Like yes. Anytime you're flying down a mountain on snow at 80 miles an hour with fiberglass planks strapped to your feet, I just have so much respect for the athleticism, but it's amazing to watch. So everybody should get their USA pride on, or whichever country you find yourself from, and watch some Super G. Yeah, unless you're from Russia. You're not allowed to be prideful if you're from Ooh, Russia this year. Too it soon? just got awkward. Too soon. Like, like contemporary. <laughs> We're nothing if not contemporary. Yes. yes. So what are, you, what are you denying this week? So this is a denial that only can uh, be appreciated by somebody from the frigid north. I'm denying frost heaves. Oh, yes. Frost heaves are the worst. So for those who are listening in uh, more temperate climates, what a frost heave is is just a demo it's like the the thorns and thistles of new hampshire so adam had his thorns and the ground didn't produce fruit and we have frost heaves and what it is is uh in i don't know about other parts of the north but in new hampshire there's lots of freezing and thawing cycles and so you get snow and it thaws and melts and then the, the water seeps under the road 
and then freezes, and so the road buckles. So they call it a frost heave. So our road was redone last year, and now it's just like it's like it's like driving on just unpaved road at this point. Um, so they're just the worst. They wreck everything. They wreck the roads. They wreck your cars. They're the worst. Frost heaves. Deny that all day long. Consider that though, maybe joy in the same way James, the brother of our Lord, might think of it in terms of frost heaves are the speed bump that God creates. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's aiding <laughs> in my sanctification. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm sure all things work together for the good of those who love God. I'm sure the frost heaves somehow fit in there, but I'm not Providence. understanding how. Yeah. So what about you? What are you denying this week? So I've been listening to all kinds of sermons from all kinds of sources the past couple of weeks. And I want to deny against sanctified imagination. You know what I yes, mean when I say that? I do. So I've been hearing so many sermons recently. I think it just happened to be the kind of population or the sample that I was pulling from where there's this tendency to over narrate, especially yes. in narrative portions of the scripture and to fill in details that at least to me, they're not present in the scripture. And I always think a great sermon is one that stays very close to God's word, yeah. but also realizes that there's so much already spoken for in God's word that we don't need to come up with other things to talk about in a sermon. So, I, and sometimes this gets lumped into the whole, I'm making it sound more holy by using the word sanctified in front of the word imagination. Yeah. So I kind of feel like that's a bit of an oxymoron, Yeah, but that might not be fair. Yeah. Yeah. God, God's word is enough. I mean, we have to explain it. We have to articulate it. Sometimes that requires like a, a sermon illustration once in a while or filling in some cultural information that, that sure. the scripture assumes for their audience that we are separated from. But yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. Yeah. But just making up details to try to make it sound more interesting or to yeah. fit a particular point that you want to make. Yeah. Oh my goodness. It wasn't even that I was offended per se. I was just thinking during some of these sermons, just give me Jesus. Yeah. Just give me the gospel. Just give me the full counsel of God. We don't need anything else. Yeah. So maybe I'm just sounding a little bit bitter to start us off, but that's where I'm at. I'm denying against that. Yeah. Well, that actually plays into our topic for the ton- for tonight. Oh, I know it does. Uh, I'm sure that we plan that. You plan that. You like um, that, right? Yeah, what are we talking about tonight, Jesse? So tonight we're talking about something that's been on my mind a lot, in which my thoughts are kind of transforming, but it's we're talking about the image of Jesus and the second commandment. Yes. So we decided we would follow up our uh, one of our more controversial episodes last week with Lordship Salvation and go straight to the second commandment and images of Jesus, which is entirely non-controversial, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's we, our hashtag should be all controversial all the time. Yeah. So before we get started, um, we're going to just put the disclaimer out there that we recognize everybody is on a different uh, place in their development theologically. Um, our, you know, our audience is primarily reformed Christians, but we recognize that there are some who are kind of new to reformed theology. And we recognize there are some that have been, you know, were born with the Westminster Confession in their hand and they were read the Heidelberg Catechism as a bedtime story. So wow. we know that there's like people on that whole spectrum. And it was only like three years ago that I actually came to what would be the historic kind of classic uh, conviction on images of Jesus. So even me, I, this is a relatively new thing for me as well. And I'm in transition on this. So I'm going to be able to speak, I think, from a place 
where I'm, my thoughts and convictions are kind of in flux. They're moving in a direction, which I think will be clear as we talk. But you're right. The whole purpose of me wanting to talk to you about this was because I think this is a place not where we need to take some kind of stance of moral superiority in our theology or in our development of the theology, but it's more if you've never thought about this or somebody's never asked you the question of how the second commandment applies to Jesus, this is a great time. So it's yeah. more about kind of fleshing out, ooh, bad <laughs> fleshing out how we understand the second commandment, it, even if you might be thinking right now, well, this seems like it doesn't apply or it's totally innocuous when it comes yeah. to images of Jesus. So I think there's going to be a great conversation. So we're not, of course, trying to persuade anybody per se to take up this particular issue and move it forward, but more that you might just consider it with kind of a open ears yeah. and a legitimate hearing. Yeah. So before we really get started in earnest, we have to talk a little bit about the numbering of the Ten Commandments. So different traditions um, follow different numbering schemas for the Ten Commandments. And there are some theological reasons um, that are sort of surmised that I don't think we need to get into. But more or less, um, traditions that are strongly against images um, tend to number the Ten Commandments with the first being, you shall have no other gods before me. The second being, you shall not make any sort of carved image or worship according to any sort of likeness. And then right. they proceed basically the same way. And then to sort of reconcile at the end um, for the traditions that follow a different number. Um, so the Roman Catholics, the Lutherans tend to follow a different numbering schema where the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. And they include the, the prohibition against visual idols as part of that. And then when we get to the 10th commandment, um, the reform tradition and the Jewish tradition keeps the prohibition of coveting. There's, there's kind of two layers to it. It keeps them as one where the Lutheran and the Catholic tradition separates those into to separate, um, to kind of reconcile to stay at 10. Now the, the Bible doesn't have numbers in front of the, the commandments. So it's not a matter of, um, God ordained numbering schemas, but it is a matter of trying to understand which, you know, where, where do these commands separate and what do right. they mean? And we'll see that the reform have a particular take on the second commandment that makes it important to delineate it from the general statement that we're not allowed to worship other gods. And then the second commandment being a more specific statement that we're not allowed to worship according to any visual likeness. Right. And that is because of course it suits a particular theological perspective or right. proclivity, right? So You'll see that. I mean, I guess I was just thinking if you're Catholic and listening to our voices, like buckle up, I guess. But yeah, or other Lutheran. than that, it's a, or Lutheran, I guess that's true. But it's interesting to me to note that because some might have thought this is just like the Reformed Brotherhood. They say, we're going to talk about the image of Jesus. And then we say, let's talk about numbering schemas <laughs> for the Ten Commandments. Yeah. But I mean, that's just like us. Like this is the podcast where if you ask for the time, we'll tell you how to build a clock. But it's because it's important. So I I appreciate you bringing that up. So can I read from Exodus 20 then? And I'll just read what you and I would probably consider the second commandment. Is that all right? Please do. All right. So this is from Exodus 20. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. 
Yeah, and then that's obviously that's repeated when uh, Moses is sort of uh, exegeting the law in the book of Deuteronomy. That The book of Deuteronomy is a sermon. Basically, he's taking the Ten Commandments or the, the whole Mosaic Law as his passage that he's exegeting. So I just want to read from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and they, they give some specific... Um, they break every commandment into a positive command and a, a prohibition. So question 50 is what is required in the second commandment? Answer, the second commandment requires the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath appointed in his word. And question 51 is what is forbidden in the second commandment? Answer, the second commandment forbids the worshiping of God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. So the first thing you'll notice um, when you're talking about the reformed understanding of the second commandment is that this is where the reformed look to scripture and see the regulative principle of worship primarily expressed in God's moral law. And we've, we've talked at length about it, so we don't have to go into it too deeply, but the regulative principle of worship is that we are not allowed to invent our own modes of worship. We are only to worship in ways that God has commanded us to worship. So the second commandment, although it's specifically talking in, in Exodus and Deuteronomy, it's specifically talking about idols and not worshiping according to visual images, the the heart of the second commandment is that, and this when Moses explains it, he goes into this, God has commanded us to worship in a particular way. And so we're not allowed to make idols or to make a carved image in order to use that for worship because God has not appointed or authorized a form for us to use in that way. Right. And I think the important thing to ask at the kind of the outset before we start to get into why the Reformed tradition carries forward that conviction and why the Westminster Larger Catechism in particular really fleshes that, I gotta stop using that, really, <laughs> really kind of articulates that in a lot more detail in, in terms of even thinking about how we understand images in our mind, both right. inwardly and outwardly. But I think the thing we have to ask is, like honestly, is what is idolatry? Yeah. So, of course, like if you were to ask me what does idolatry suggest to my mind just off the cuff as just kind of word association, you know, sometimes it's like an indigenous people group groveling before a totem pole or statues in a Hindu temple or like the dance the priests of Baal are doing around Elijah's altar. And for sure, none of us are going to debate the fact that those are all certainly idolatrous, right. but in a super obvious way, right? So yeah. I think the thing we need to realize, is it possible that there are more subtle forms of idolatry as well. And when I look at the second commandment, and this is almost irrespective of whether you split them up or you amalgamate them into a single commandment. If the second commandment stood alone, it would be natural, I think, to suppose that it refers to the worship of images of other gods. But in the context of the second commandment, it can hardly be referring to this sort of idolatry because if it were, it would simply be repeating the thought of the first commandment without adding right. anything to it. Right. So, so to me, it points to us to this principle, to quote Charles Hodge, that idolatry consists not only in the worship of false gods, but also in the worship of the true God by images. And I think we have to start there just to really begin to understand, well, why is this the default? Why is that regulative? Because beyond just being regulative, I presume we're going to get into what it means to have images altogether, even if you say, well, I'm not using them in worship, right? Right. Yeah. So just to sort of follow up on that, let me just read something. Uh, this is from Exodus 32, um, and it's the account of the golden calf. And I'm going to start in 
uh, verse two. Uh, I'll just start in verse one. When the people saw Moses delayed uh, to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up and make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that you uh, that are in your ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they, and they said, so the people of Israel said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord or um, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. Right. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace. You are to speak to the people of Israel saying, I just went the wrong direction. Sorry, hold on. And brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose and play. So what what um, probably is obvious here is that the nation of Israel has done something they shouldn't do. But what's not quite as obvious is that is what Aaron thinks is going on or what Aaron is trying to sort of redeem the situation. So the people come to Aaron and say, make us gods. So there's no question that the people of Israel are, are making an idol, a false idol, probably thinking that this is um, like one of the gods of Egypt or something like that. But Aaron says, well, no, tomorrow we're going to have a feast to Yahweh. So Aaron, right. Aaron is sitting here thinking, well, I made this calf. But it's okay because we're going to use it to worship Yahweh. And as we see in the, the rest of the chapter, that doesn't fly. That's not okay. So the the question is, well, what was there what was the sin in this besides just um besides just the general idea that they were making false gods? It's obviously not okay that Aaron has now kind of sanctified or baptized this this golden calf by saying, well, we're going to worship Yahweh with it. And so the Reformed look at this and say, well, Aaron is is presenting worship that is unauthorized. He's presenting an image that is unauthorized by God. So Aaron's sin here is still a violation of the second commandment, even though he is intending this calf that he's created to be used in the worship of the true God. So if if we're looking at the first commandment, you shall have no gods before me, it doesn't appear, at least on, on a surface level, it doesn't appear that Aaron has violated that commandment. Right. But if you look at the second commandment, it's really clear that Aaron has. And that's where we have to understand that connection between the regulative principle of worship and the second commandment in the Reformed mind is really why the Reformed go to where they go in terms of their prohibition of any sort of image of God whatsoever being constructed. It's not enough to say, well, we're going to make an image of God and we're just not going to use it for worship. I mean, there's a whole other question about the third commandment there, but it's not enough for that. It's that no image whatsoever can be created, even if you're going to be using it for holy or sort of set apart purposes, it's still not appropriate to do. Right. And that makes complete sense to me because we have God who is creative as part of his own being and then is endowing, at least in some sense, a lesser form of creativity to the human beings that he has created. So it would make sense that it would be necessary for him to clarify that so that we do not think that somehow by being spiritually creative, and and again, I have no idea what Aaron was thinking. It's clear that 
the point of this particular account is just how slippery a slope it is right. when you bring in el- other elements that are unauthorized into worship because it's it's just going to go very, very poorly. So it's important to recognize that that is why there are these two and they, they're not the same, in other words, in my mind, the, the yeah. first and the second, either the, however you split them up, they're not the same. So being that, I think a lot of people will hear this and say, I get that. And clearly, if, if I had been there, I would have been like, this is clearly like a bully in violation of something. Even if you weren't like, well, I can't point to chapter and verse, which of course didn't exist then, but you would say, this doesn't feel right. This is not what God would ordain. And then you might pull that into your current life now and say, I'm not doing that thing. So right. let's get to like talking about Jesus and images of Jesus, which seem to be so ubiquitous in our culture and how we're making the tie from that account to images of Christ here and now. Yeah, let, let me just read one more thing because I think I sent this to you earlier and I think it's so, um, it really puts its finger on it and the source of it is is interesting. So this is, um, this is from the JPS Torah commentary on uh, the book of Exodus. And it's um, a scholar named Nahum Sarna, who is not a Christian. He's, a, he's sort of an eminent Jewish scholar. And he writes of the fourth commandment. He says, the for, or the second commandment, the forms of worship are now regulated. The revolutionary Israelite concept of God entails his being wholly separated from the world of his creation and wholly other than what the human mind can conceive or the human imagined, imagination depict. Therefore, any material representation of divinity is prohibited. A proscription elaborated in Deuteronomy 4.12 and 5-19, uh, through 19, where it's explained that the people heard, quote, the sound of words at Sinai, quote, but perceived no shape, nothing but a voice. In the Israelite view, any symbolic representation of God must necessarily be both inadequate and a distortion, for an image becomes identified with what it represents and is soon looked upon as the place and presence of the deity. So what he's saying is that the the Israelite worship was not just don't make an image and worship that image. It was it was our God cannot be imaged. And so any sort right. of image that we make of our God is necessarily a distortion of our God. And that's really, really important for us to remember is that even if we're talking about Jesus, right? Even if we're talking about Jesus, according to humanity, according to his human nature, when we make a picture of something and call it Jesus, we are distorting Jesus. We're making an image that is by definition, not Jesus. Right. That's the critical distinction, which has been super helpful for me, because if you look up this topic on the internet, you'll often find a lot of vitriolic rhetoric around this point, which I think turns into kind of this moralistic stances of of all kinds. But the bottom line is what we're saying is that it's not a matter of whether or not you worship the image. It's that God himself cannot be made in any kind of image. And therefore, when you do that, you're going against him altogether. So, right. I mean, I would summarize this argument, which you kind of already have, like in terms of Jesus, by creating an image of Jesus, and that could be anything like in painting, stained glass, a person is inserting, by definition, is inserting his or her own ideas of what Jesus looked like. And because yeah. we do not know what he looked like, that image would not be the true image or representation of Christ. It would just be an image of a man from the imagination of an artist that he or she thought was called Jesus. Right. So here's the rub for me. If those images then do not represent Christ, and how can they, based on what we just said, then they are being put in the place of the true Christ and evoking any sense of worship of that which is not Christ, but is inserted in the place of Christ, by definition, 
is idolatry. Yeah. And I think some people are going to quibble because they're going to say, as I, as I have thought before, again, I'm not using those images for worship, but how do we escape that? Like that, that's actually my question to you. How can we escape that by, is that like a reasonable clause to get us out of not obeying the second commandment? <laughs> well, uh, there's nothing that can get us out of not obeying the second commandment. But I, I take your question to mean that are we violating the second commandment if we have an image uh, that purports to be of Jesus, but we don't use it for worship? Right. That's what I mean. Exactly. Yeah, and the the response that I would have is you're telling me that you have an image that you claim is Jesus and you're not going to worship. Like, what's that all about? Right. To me, that that's just a nonsense proposition. Um you know, you, you can have an image that the artist says, well, this is Jesus. And you say, well, no, it's not. And then you don't worship. But you're saying this isn't Jesus. But if you have an image that you put in front of your face um, or in, in front of your mind's eye and say, this is Jesus, and then you don't worship, then you're violating the third commandment at that point. Because the third commandment is a prohibition against specifically against utilizing God's name in a flippant way not giving it the reverence it's due, but that extends to to using all of the facts about God in a flippant way. So it's not just turning the word God into a curse word. It would also be making crass jokes that involve theology, right? That happens all right. the time in online circles. For sure. People make jokes about baptism, right? Or they make jokes about the Lord's Supper, and that's a violation of the third commandment. But another violation of the third commandment would be not worshiping when confronted with the reality of God. So when I read a systematic theology book, if I'm using that as just sort of like intellectual stimulus and I'm not worshiping based on the truth that's presented to me, then I'm actually violating the third commandment. And so an image of Jesus that purports to be of Jesus, um, if you're treating that as though it is an image of Jesus, but you're not worshiping as a result of it, then you're not you're not giving that image the reverence that's due. It would be like seeing Jesus face to face and being like, well, you know, hi, how are you doing? I'm not going to worship right now. Like that's not, it's not a legitimate kind of uh, proposition. That's an amazing greeting for Christ. Hi, <laughs> how, are you, how are you doing? How are you doing? How are you doing Christ? Yeah. Um, I totally agree with that. I mean, that's, the thing that we see when we start to disobey one of the one of the commandments or misunderstand them, it creates a domino effect or we entrap right. ourselves or they entrap us rather because there is a logical consistency to, to them. And I think that a lot of people don't think of the one, the first, second and the third in that kind of way. I mean, right. I like that. This is basically, I think, from which the Westminster standards are pulling all of this deep conviction. Because, you know, for them, not only the identification of the physical creation of an image of God, and that would be, for example any one of the persons of the Trinity, right? right. So we're talking, yeah. you know, we're unbiased in that, like doves as well, get out. So there, but the Westminster standards, they're also targeting the thought behind it as a violation of the second commandment, yeah. which is, is mind blowing, but I think totally appropriate. So whether the thought is expressed on paper or stays in the mind, the same principle applies. And that is inventing or inserting rather an invented Christ in the place of the true revealed Christ in scripture is idolatry. There's just no yeah. way around that. So we're going to end up being entrapped by the law on this thing. It also presupposes that we need an image of Christ, or maybe let me say it this way, because this might ruffle more feathers and hit closer to home. Children need yeah. an image of Jesus to understand him or to come into any kind of sense of worship. 
But God has already given us one visual means by which we both remember and participate in the body and the blood of Lord Jesus, and that's the Lord's Supper. So yeah. it's not as if we're without these things, but I do think we have to have honest conversations about how and why we are using this image. And for anybody that would argue about the fact that they can compartmentalize this, even based even after what you said, Tony, I think the larger argument to me is the fact that it's really difficult to remove images from your mind. So yeah. whether you see something as a child or you see something on the screen, here's like a really dumb, totally non-spiritual example. If you've ever tried to read any of the Harry Potter books after <laughs> seeing the movies, it's yep. probably nigh impossible for you not to picture or evoke all of the images of the characters as you read in your mind. That just says yeah. something about the human mind. So I think this is really difficult to get that image out. And so we should really avoid it to begin with, not just because it's, it's scriptural, but it's not helpful. It's just not yeah. helpful. Well, and it's interesting too, because, you know, I run into a lot of people when I have this kind of discussion online who say like, well, this is just the way the human mind works. How can you read the gospels and read right. an account of the son of man walking on water and not form a picture in your mind? And what I've always found interesting is I actually have a difficult time forming mental pictures. So some some people just can't do it and some people struggle with it. So for me, um, I, I never had a mental image of Harry Potter until I saw the movies. And then I had something I could recall. But even now, like when I think about Daniel Radcliffe, right? Who played Harry Potter. And I, I actually just watched a movie with him in it the other night. I'm not picturing Daniel Radcliffe. When I want to think about Daniel Radcliffe, I actually am reciting words in my mind that correspond to attributes he has. So rather than picturing someone with brown hair, I'm thinking brown hair, kind right. of pasty complexion, you know, and if I'm thinking <laughs> about Harry Potter, I'm thinking like has a scar over his left eye, um, glasses. Like I'm thinking, verbal descriptors. I'm not thinking in terms of, of pictures. And so I don't think that it is actually like fundamental to the human experience to visualize things that way. But I think our culture, particularly because of the way that English storytelling is done in our modern culture and fiction stories is driven by formulating mental images. So right. for a Christian who's grown up in the culture that we're in, the context we're in, it does, it does present a challenge at times because we're so used to doing that. But you're absolutely right. If you do get a mental image into your head, it's really hard to get it out there. And it comes back to you at like random weird times. So I, I know a lot of guys who have struggled. This is a, an unrelated subject. Well, as unrelated as anything is in, in theology and Christianity, but who struggled with pornography. And one of their biggest struggles that they'll tell me about is that they'll go years without ever having like a relapse, but then a mental image from some video they watched four years ago will pop into their mind. And then that mental image will entice them to go back to the internet. And, and those mental images come forward in our minds or whatever it is, you know, whatever is coming from the back of our minds comes forward un involuntarily. Well, you know, if, if it's, some scene you saw in a movie that's not, I'm not talking about pornography now, but some, some scene you saw in a movie that flashes in your mind's eye, well, that's not a big deal. But if you're praying and all of a sudden an image of some guy you saw in a movie who was pretending to be Jesus comes to your mind, right? well, that's a big deal because now all of a sudden you're worshiping 
according to that image. Maybe not worshiping yes. that image, but you're worshiping yes. according to that image. And that image has now pervaded your worship in a way that is not not authorized in the scriptures. At best, what happens is we're thinking about Christ in those man-made terms now. Right. Yeah. So it's it's come in and now it's it's just permeated, it's stained, it's taken over. And that's really hard to get around. By the way, probably the best opening sentence I've heard you say in 75 episodes was just now when you said, when I want to think about Daniel Radcliffe, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't know how often that happens, but knowing that you're a deliberate guy, that struck me as like, there are times I'm just in my car and, and I want to think about Daniel Radcliffe. And here's how I do that. I blame you because of the Harry Potter thing. But... <laughs> When I had this discussion the other day with someone, I thought I said like Apple. I don't think of the image of an apple. I'm actually more apt to sort of mentally generate the taste of an apple or the scent of an apple than I am to be able to kind of conjure up the image of an apple in my mind. Instead, I would be thinking things like red or green. I would be thinking about texture, but I wouldn't be thinking about the image of the texture. I'd be talking about smoothness or kind of waxiness. I'd think the word stem, all of those kinds of verbal components that you use to describe an apple. That's the way my mind works. And there's a lot of people like that. Sure. So it's not the case that um, you have to formulate mental pictures. Um, Most people have never tried to read the Bible without doing that. Um, When I first came to this conviction, it was relatively easy for me because mental images are not something that comes natural to me. But I actually put a blank note card in my Bible. And when a mental image would flash forward, I would take that blank image out, that blank uh, note card out, and I would stare at it for a few seconds to kind of like reset my visual mental palette. So that way, when I was doing that, and then I would pray and I'd say, God, I know this isn't I know this isn't honoring to you to have these images, so please take them away from me. And then I would look at that card and then I would go back to reading. And I I trained myself to be able to do that mentally without having that note card anymore. I can stop if I have a mental image come forward. I can stop and pray and sort of push that image out of my mind in a way that I couldn't before. So if, if this is a conviction that you're growing in or you're developing or you have and you're not sure what to do about this, that's a helpful kind of technique that I used to sort of be able to train myself to not not allow myself to have those images come forward. It was easier for me. I mean, it's a real struggle for some people and there's no judgment. If, as long as we're struggling against our sin, that's, that's what we're expected to do. Exactly. But there are ways to sort of train yourself and to help yourself kind of grow in that area. I agree with that. And I think that I would stand just as firm that I used to think it might have been required, but the more I tried to understand this and what God require, the more I saw the Bible itself teaches, I believe that it's not necessary to put yourself in a full visual context. And the reason I say that is because the Bible itself presents no information, whatever, about the personal appearance of Jesus. Right. But it does teach that we are not to think of him as he may have appeared, especially in the days of his flesh, but as he as he is today in heavenly glory, in his right. you know, a state of exaltation. And since the Bible presents no data about the personal appearance of our Savior, all artist's pictures of him are wholly imaginary and constitute only, of course, the artist's yep. ideals of his character and appearance. And that would include what we do in our minds to fill in the gaps if we want to see his face, for instance, in some type of one of the occasions or narratives that we're reading from the New Testament. Yeah. So we, it's important to think about this because it is really unhelpful and it can be partially damaging if we're not making that case uh, strong already. 
And I think what's happened is not that we've read the Bible and saw that there was some kind of gray area on this. It's that we've let the culture teach us that as long as we have the image, but don't really do anything too Catholic with it, for instance, yeah. that we're more or less okay. So I think a lot of people take this idea of imagery of Jesus and they draw the line at veneration. And if I'm not really worshiping in some kind of like explicitly religious way with it, then it's no problem. But let me give like an example of something I heard a sermon. This is like almost a decade ago. This is a well-intentioned pastor during the Christmas time season trying to get the congregation to spend more focused time, and focus I think is the key word, meditating on what it meant for there to be the divine essence in human form. And where he went with this is he said, you should set up, because many people already had them, of course, set up a creche or a manger in your home in a prominent location so that several times during the week, you could stop and stare at it and really focus on it. And what he's trying to do, of course, is to get us to meditate properly right. on Jesus Christ and what he's done and accomplished and the God's great love for us and sending his son. But that there's no way that's not worship because even if you have a, a figurine or a statue, what it's doing is it's always trying to spur some type of emotion, try to give you some type of focus or context or element by which you can cr- kind of fine tune all of your attention on. And yeah. that's the problem that we're talking about, that the Bible says that's not where you should be putting your attention. The effort you should be focusing, so to speak, is through faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And they're very different things. Yeah, and and the the tragedy of that example is that, that that discipline, not just the externals of that discipline, but the intention behind that discipline is the exact same driving factor that drove ancient idolatry. Right. When you're talking right. about like Greek, Greek idolatry and statues, the point of having an idol in your house of Zeus was that you, you can't see Zeus. He's out there somewhere probably. And he, he exists, but no one, no one sees him. He's just floating up there on Mount Olympus and he hardly ever comes down. And, and when he does, he's not shaped like Zeus. He's shaped like an eagle or a horse or some other thing. And so you set up this statue in your house so you don't forget about Zeus. And so you go over there, you pinch a little bit of of incense to Zeus and you say a little prayer to Zeus and you just focus your attention on that statue. And if you focus your attention on that statue, then Zeus will know that. And that's going to somehow you're paying homage to him through the statue. And that unfortunately is the exact it. I incidentally, it's the same exact reasoning that like Roman Catholics use for statues and Eastern Orthodox use for icons. But it's also kind of by extension without us realizing it. A lot of times when Protestants have this kind of impulse, it's the same thing. You know, the cross you wear on your neck is not an idol until all of a sudden you have to hold it in a certain way when you pray because it helps you focus. Right. Right. Exactly. That's what we're talking about. Prayer beads. There's nothing wrong with prayer beads as like a mnemonic device to like, I've got 10 people I'm praying for. There's 10 beads. So I just move it through my hands to help me keep count of where I am in the process. That's not necessarily idolatry, but the second you add a spiritual component of that, this is somehow more efficacious because I've got this visual aid or this tactile aid. That's when it becomes idolatry. Right. And I'm, I'm saying this, like I'm coming at this again, my thoughts are in transition, moving in this direction, obviously. And I'm coming at it from somebody who I think has a penchant for loving and appreciating art, even especially like religious art. Like there's some beautiful Catholic art, especially more in architecture. But what I'm not saying is that like all of that is bad or ambiance is bad, but we're focusing explicitly on what it means 
to have an image of Christ in your life, even if it's, for lack of a better way of saying it, like a throwaway image, or it's just something that you have or something that doesn't really mean that much. Like you said, in terms of the third commandment, that says a whole lot. But what really has convinced me of this position is not even a lot of the argumentation that we've used so far, but it was something from John Owen. So let me read a couple of sentences that just really turned me on my head on this and made me feel convicted that not only was this a helpful course of action, but it was the right one. So this is from the glory of Christ. I'm just going to read four or five sentences that turned me upside down. This is what Owen writes. The beauty of the person of Christ as represented in the scripture consists in things invisible unto the eyes of flesh. They are such as no hand of man can represent or shadow. It is the eye of faith alone that can see this king in his beauty. What else can contemplate on the untreated glories of his divine nature? Can the hand of man represent the union of his natures in the same person wherein he is peculiarly amiable? What eye can discern the mutual communications of the properties of his different natures in the same person which depends thereon, whence it is that God laid down his life for us and purchased his church with his own blood? So what he's saying here to me is that if you want to apprehend Jesus— the eye is actually the inferior tool. It was never meant to behold his glory, at least in its fullness. What Thomas Watson would call, if you're looking at an image of Christ, you're seeing half Jesus, so to speak. Yeah. But what he's saying here is faith. Faith is the thing that allows us to see this king in all his beauty. And so when I read that and meditated on that, I thought, he's absolutely right. Like If, if I want to be close to Jesus by apprehending him and his beauty and his nature and his essence, then I've got to get the eye out of it because it's clear that faith is the way that I really come in closer contact with him. I mean, does that make sense? It does. And I want to follow that up here with something out of 1 John uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him like he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Amen. And so, so John is saying that somehow the the appearing of Christ and us beholding Christ visually in the future in the eschaton in his return will change us. So we we our glorification, our final glorification is somehow connected to the beatific vision. Exactly how? I have no idea, right? That's, as far as I know right now, that's archetypal theology that we have not been given archetypal knowledge of. But what happens is, and I think this is part of where Owen is going, is that we long so much to see Jesus. Yes. There's a there's a primal urge among Christians to see Jesus. And it's not just it's not just for the desire to satisfy our curiosity. We, we know because of the spirit's internal testimony that that, that vision of Jesus is fundamental to our, our final state. Now we may not all be able to articulate that. Most of us have never made that connection to that verse in, in first John, but all Christians long to see their savior, to be in his presence. And what we do when we create, an image of Christ, whether it's a mental image or physical image, is we sort of attempt to bring that future reality into into existence now. And so we substitute the reality of the future appearing of Christ with a cheap, 
knockoff substitute that we can have now. So we trade, I mean, this is, this is Romans one stuff, right? We, we trade the truth for a lie. And that, that whole bat, you know, that whole passage is about idolatry. We exchange the creator for the creation. And it's really sad when Christians do it because they're usually doing it because they want a good thing. Like to see Jesus is a good thing, right? but we can't rush God's providence and his timing. And when we, when we attempt to make an image of Jesus, we're trying to do that. We're trying to take that timing into our own hands. And we willingly accept something that is a cheap knockoff in order to do that. I'm glad you dropped the beatific vision right in there, getting fancy and, and theological, because <laughs> I've been thinking about this recently, that very idea that we basically click, drag, and drop the beatific vision into our present experience yeah. because we want it bad. And sometimes we do this unwittingly. Again, it's, it's a good desire to want to see your Lord. However, I've been thinking about this way, and this is my analogy. And like all analogies, I'm going to give you a warning. It's going to break down, and it might be too extreme. But here's how I've been thinking about it. I think the beatific vision is a bit like sex in the context of marriage. Yeah. That God has designed it in a particular way, and his design is for it to wait for a particular time for it, so it can be fully realized. Now, can you have sex outside of marriage? Sure. Do people do that? Of course. Does it cause problems? Absolutely. So I think that this is one of those things where we see the deliberate providential design of God. And so this is where I don't want us to, I don't want anybody to feel like we're coming down heavy handed. Like if, if you have not yet had this, a conviction like this, not even have not yet had, but if you haven't thought about this, like you are somehow less formed in your theology than anybody else, it's just a matter of thinking about what we're doing and yeah. being very deliberate because this is the kind of thing, like, you know, better than anybody, Tony, like this is the kind of thing that leads into all kinds of like, you know, Nestorian style yeah. heresy like that. When we look at, when we can only see the, I can only see what is not spiritual. And so when we see this image of Jesus, we're getting basically just the humanity. And then we're kind of like throwing in some, well, he's especially graced by God though. Right. And that's not good enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really harmful way to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's it is that Christology on a technical level is is all about how do we understand the miracle of the incarnation? What What is going on in, in the manger in Bethlehem? What happened in Mary's womb? And the Christian Orthodox position is that what happened is the eternal person, the second person of the Trinity, who was a complete person in his divinity, added to himself a human nature. And so it's not that the human nature is not complete, but the human nature is secondary. The human right. nature is what's called accidental, meaning that it's not the the son was complete prior to the incarnation. It's not like he was incomplete and, and finished becoming what he always was going to be. He added something to himself that he didn't need to do. He didn't need that for his person. But when we construct an image of Jesus, we are flipping that equation around. So Nestorianism, one way to be a Nestorian is to think that Christ is two persons somehow fused together. Right. Another way to be a Nestorian is to emphasize the human nature of Christ as the subject of the incarnation. And what that means is you treat the miracle of the incarnation as though the humanity of Christ somehow add, added divinity to it. Right. It, it, in the early church, it was adoptionism. Right. Christ was a man who somehow became God when God added divinity to him. Right. But a more subtle way to do that is to say that the son is 
is a human person that somehow has this special relationship with the Logos or is somehow specially united with God in a way that no one else is. And when we paint a picture of Jesus, all we're painting, all we can paint is a man. So we can say, well, this is a special man. This is a special man who's in some special way as God as well. But we can't paint a picture of someone who is primarily God with a human nature added to him. So even, you know, we talk about the the fact that God hasn't given us an image to an authorized image to worship by and all images are necessary visual corruptions of God. Right. So even even if we're just talking about the visual element of it, there's no such thing as a true picture of Jesus. But even if you could. Even if somehow in the first century, a painter was sitting there and drawing, painting a portrait of Jesus, that portrait would still not be an accurate representation of the person of Jesus. Exactly. Even that painting that was generated because of the real person of Christ is still not a sufficient image. And, you know, there's going to be people who always ask, well, what about the memory of the apostles when they remember Jesus and they had the visual image of Jesus? It's a totally different situation because those those mental uh, impressions were created by a real impression of the second person of the Trinity. In right, the real thing. So we could get into you know metaphysics discussions about whether or not those those images were images of hum, you know, mental images of his humanity versus his person or whatever, but there's no person on Earth right now that can claim that. So even if that is a legitimate way. You know, even if the the apostles were somehow exempted from this um, this prohibition of mental images because they have a real mental image, we're not. So it's it's a right. total red herring to throw that out there. Um, but it 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 really is important because the way that we talk about Jesus uh, Christologically, the way that we think about Jesus, all of those things are related to each other. And if we have a conception of a Jesus who can be portrayed visually in some sort of medium, then we have a deficient a deficient understanding of Jesus because Jesus is God and God right. is invisible. So whatever it is, however that works in the actual presence of Jesus in terms of our perception of the divine, it's not a visual perception. Jesus just looks like a dude. He's just a guy. He looks like a right. man. He doesn't have, he's not, he probably doesn't glow. He isn't, he isn't hovering above the ground somewhere. Right. But he is God. So we can't, we can't accurately portray that visually. There's no way to do it. And, and just in case we think, or anybody thinks that that hasn't done some amount of damage, I would ask anybody to consider that pictures of Jesus have been greatly influenced by the theological viewpoint of the artist. That's always necessarily the case. Yeah. And what bothers me, the more I think about this, honestly, is the typical modern picture of Jesus is the product of this 19th century liberalism, and it presents a gentle Jesus who is emphasized only with the love and fatherhood of God and said little or nothing about sin, judgment, or eternal punishment. So consider that perhaps more people living today have derived their ideas of Jesus Christ from these typically liberal pictures of Jesus that then they have derived their ideas of Jesus from the Bible itself. And so these yeah. people are going to inevitably think of Jesus as a human person rather than thinking of him according to the biblical teaching as a divine person with a human nature. And the inevitable effect of the popular acceptance of pictures of Jesus is to overemphasize his humanity and to forget or neglect his deity, which of course no picture can portray. Yeah. 
And, you know, this is a whole other rabbit trail we could go down uh, if it wasn't already minute 51 of our 57-minute <laughs> podcast. But I do want to make a, a brief comment on the fact that, like, in our culture, Jesus is always portrayed as a white dude. And yeah, for sure. There are, you know, you can go too far in making everything a race issue. That is definitely a thing out there. But Jesus is representative of all humanity, right? Every tribe, tongue, and nation, and you could also include every color of person is is represented in Jesus. And I don't mean that like Jesus is some amalgamation of those things. But what I mean is that Jesus stands in the place of people from all of those categories. So Jesus the whole like Jesus was a black man thing. I, I don't think so. I mean, Middle Easterners are not, are not black. That's, that's their, usually Middle Easterners have olive colored skin, maybe a little darker than the average, um, you know, Northern European or something like that. But that's totally beside the point because people of all colors are represented by Jesus on the cross. So when right. we, when we pigeonhole pictures of Jesus into and I'm not just talking about like the crazy outlandish, like surfer, blonde hair, blue eye Jesus, but like people, I, I don't want to get any more descriptive than that because I don't want to cause people to make mental images. But when we portray Jesus as a white dude, we are eliminating an entire portion of God's church. And right now, the largest portion of God's church from feeling visually like they can be represented in Christ. And, you know, maybe, just maybe, God exercised some wisdom in sending his son to a time where there were no cameras exactly, and where painting was not a big thing that was going on in Israel. Right. And the reason painting wasn't a big thing in Israel, the second commandment. So all of these things tie into each other, but God, God not only gave us this law, but in his wisdom, he providentially ordered the coming of Christ in such a way that images of Christ would not be produced during his lifetime. And in fact, it wasn't for several hundred years after his lifetime that images became regularly used in the church. Images came into the church through popular kind of like popular piety. And it wasn't until much later that the church accepted any sort of images of Jesus in the church at all. So providentially speaking, God made it as clear as possible in, in providence that images of his son were not to be used in the church. And unfortunately, the church just screwed it up big time and went off the rails. But the Reformation was a reformation of worship, not just of, of theology, as if those two things are disconnected. But this rediscovery or re-appropriation um, of the, the second commandment to regulate not only uh, you know, little wooden blocks that we pretend are, are Zeus or Poseidon, but images of Christ and images of God, that was part of the Reformation as well. Right. It hinges on a matter of respect and we are all prone kind of based on what you said to screw it up. So the whole point of this is really to kind of be more thoughtful, to start really approaching this with maybe a different level of intent. And like the last example I'll give is I wonder if as Christians, we shouldn't be the first people to at least be conscientious objectors when we see these types of images, which sometimes are used in kind of passive and non-offensive ways. But in other times, as if like an image of Christ can be non-offensive based on what we're saying, but at other times, 
It's just straight flamboyant. And I think the reason why we've gone in that direction is because nobody has stood up and said, this is wrong. Like, for instance, we're not saying that this is the same as like the Muslim case for not having pictures of Muhammad. Like, this is a totally different thing. In fact, this carries more weight than their argument would. Right. But this happens a lot around Christmas time, of course. But like an ugly sweater, for instance, you know where I'm going with this, right, Tony? I do. (laughs) An ugly sweater, for instance. That has a very generic, cliche, characterized picture of Jesus that says, like, birthday boy. I don't know how that cannot be downright offensive to Christians yeah. because it, it is not only an image of Jesus. It is making light. It is a mockery. I mean, it's just asking for the kind of judgment that, right. I mean, Thomas Watson, what I love is he was so convicted about this that he said it's not only our right but it is completely okay to when you see an image of Christ to break it to pieces, which yeah. I wonder what we would do if we actually took that seriously. So all I'm saying is, if you haven't thought through this issue before, I would encourage you to consider studying it. And it shouldn't scare us to think through the wisdom of our confessional heritage. In fact, it should at the very least cause us to ponder the rationale for why the Bible sets it up this way and the explanation for the Westminster's interpretation of the second yeah. commandment. And what I would recommend to start that journey, if you've even never thought about this before, a wonderful book by Daniel Hyde. It's called In Living Color, Images of Christ and Means of Grace. That's a great starting point. Yeah. So to kind of close things out, Jesse just smashed his hand or something on his desk. It was probably the funniest thing I've got, seen in a while. I got too excited. <laughs> Not like slammed his hand down on the desk like he moved. Anyway, this is great radio, folks. So to kind of close <laughs> this out, um, I just want to read a little bit from Matthew, Henry, Matthew Henry's commentary on Exodus 20. Um, he says, it is, he's speaking of the second commandment. He says, it is certain that it forbids any making of any image of God for whom can we liken him to or the image of any creature for a religious use. It is called the changing of the truth of God into a lie for an image is a teacher of lies. It insinuates to us that God has a body, whereas he is an infinite spirit. It also forbids us to make images of God in our fancies as if he were a man as we are. Our religious worship must be governed by the power of faith and not by the power of imagination. So, I, I mean, he, he, I, I read that this morning and it just like floored me because it's, do you ever have this experience where like you think that you have like come up with something and then you read it in someone and you're like, Oh, I'm not that great. <laughs> that is my story of my life every day. Yeah. So that's the way I felt when I read this was like, Oh yeah, of course. Duh. Like, of course this is something that's been in the reform tradition since the reform tradition was a thing. Right. Um, it started with Calvin Zwingli. I mean, they were all, opposed to this and it goes further back in the church there are ecumenical councils in the first seven centuries of the church that prohibited the making and use of images so it's not a new thing it's not an innovation that the reformers came to it's the historical position of the church Um, so really think through that it's not the case that just because the church has always believed something or has been dominant in a particular position that that it's true. But when you encounter something like this, that has a long historical pedigree that men you would trust in other areas of your theology have a different position, you should take time to really consider that. And I mean, I can remember when I was the guy on Nick Batzig's Facebook wall 
saying like, well, what about, what about the apostles? They had mental images of Jesus. What are you talking about? Were they committing a second commandment violation? I was that guy like four years ago. So it take, you have to think through these and you know what? It, it becomes a bit of a pain point, right? When I buy a book and there's a picture of Jesus on the cover, what do I do? I'm not going to answer the question what I do, but what do you do? Like this, there's real world implications of this. Break it to pieces. Break it to pieces. Yeah. When, when Goodreads decides to pick a cover of a book that's different than one I have. Right. And it posts to my Facebook wall and it's a picture of Jesus. What do I do? Like, I mean, the obvious answer is you delete that comment, but like, I'm a real type A guy and that bothers me that like, I can't have that status update there. Oh, I'm with you. To catalog the progress I've made in that book. So there are real world implications of this, but it, it's something as simple as, should I have a picture of Jesus on the cover of my worship bulletin? Right. Should I, um, should I be overly descriptive in supplying details that the Bible does not when I'm talking about the crucifixion at Easter? That's a place that goes for a lot of people. They mm-hmm. wanted to get into all these details about what Jesus's face looked like and the the way that his body was moving, all these different details that the Bible doesn't tell us. Um, what do I do when I need to buy my kid their first Bible? Right. Like That's particularly it's tough. It's hard to find a children's Bible. I'm not entirely sure why there's a such thing as a children's Bible personally, but that's a different diatribe. But what do you do? Right? Do you buy the Jesus Storybook Bible and then go through with a Sharpie and scribble it all out? I know people who've done that. Or do you do something else? There are real world implications of this that we need to think through because I can speak for myself when I say this, that there are times now that I look back at something I posted on my wall four years ago or five years ago or a book that I have or a, um, a picture that I drew or something along those lines. And I have to look at that and recognize I committed a grave, the grave I committed this, the grave sin of idolatry. When I did this, right. I violated the second commandment of God when I did this. And that's you and me both. That's hard. So it would behoove us all to take some time and think through these things to be rational people. You know, Paul says your reasonable peoples go to the scriptures and to talk it over with each other in charity kindly. Um, and if you are a person who's come to a conviction in this, then recognize that you, you went through a process to get here too. So you have to be charitable with the people who are not in the same place you are and recognize not everybody's going to even get to the same place you are. Right. We're all on different paths and we don't always come to the same conclusions. Um, and, and that's lamentable because somebody's right and somebody's wrong or both people are wrong. But you have to act charitably towards your brothers and sisters. Right on. We need that faith and not that sight, I guess, is how we can absolutely summarize some of that. So in that spirit, Tony, what people I think should do is they should grab a good friend. Well, they've already listened to this episode. So now this is going to be weird. You should grab a friend that you know hasn't listened to this episode, listen to it with them or your spouse or a brother <laughs> or Daniel Radcliffe. Yes. And then you should just talk it out. I'll tell you what, if you can get this episode into the hands of Daniel Radcliffe, and then hopefully he's not mad because I said one of the defining features that I think about is brown hair and pasty complexion. (laughs) But that dude needs some sun, man. Have you seen that guy? He needs some sun. Somebody get that man some sun. This is so great. Yeah. So please, Daniel Radcliffe, leave us a voicemail. (laughs) Let let us know uh, what your stance is on the second commandment. 
but yeah, recommend this episode to a friend or share it with somebody. That's the yeah. sharing is caring, right? Sharing is caring. All right. Let's roll this out. <laughs> it's like we forgot how to end an episode lately. We just got so into it. We did. Well, that'll do it. Until next time, honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood. Uh, what if I'm fine?